What is up, team? Welcome back to the show. Today, I'm joined once again by my man, Brandon DeCruz. Brandon, thank you for being back, man. What has been going on with you since we last chatted? Man, everything's been going well on my end, my man. As I was uh, recapping you off air, it's been a very busy week. Um, we're just a little bit over a week out from the Physique Education Collective. So I've honestly been spending much of my free time uh, just diving into more of the research um, and working on my presentation which is on the concept or on the topic of optimizing insulin sensitivity and blood glucose management for improving body composition and health outcomes. And so really, you know, I've been trying to collate as much of the newer research because there's a lot of individuals within our sphere, which quote, you know, um, older research, which by all means, you know, research, you know, once it's been done well, does apply going forward. So it does apply to the future, but there's a lot of interesting data that's come out, especially since, you know, the pandemic that deals with metabolic health, which is essentially how we utilize, store, and um, metabolize substrates. So, you know, carbohydrates and fats. So that has a big thing, a big spectrum to do with metabolic flexibility, as well as with insulin sensitivity. So there's been a lot of research that's been done. And since the fact that we've been out of, you know, we're still within like this, uh, I guess, COVID era, but, um, you know, research labs have reopened within the last year and a half, a lot of data that they had collected, especially like in the NHANES data set, that was backed up between like 2019 and 2020. It's really come out within the last couple of months. So I've been really trying to catch up. I've been diving into every journal you could think of, subscribing to them, paying for them. I'm really trying to bring something different that everyone else talks about on podcasts. And really my goal is to truly bridge the gap between the medical literature on this topic and the practical applications that we can make in the trenches with our clients to improve their physiques and metabolic health in order to not only get them like results right here and now, like it's great to get someone a 12 week transformation. However, really what I've become known for and what my real emphasis or my focus is on is helping people improve over the long term and and also helping those that are already, you know, what would be considered like maxed out, like someone like an advanced trainee, I'm trying to get them to the next level. And this is where really tying in, I always say like the attention to details make all the difference, especially with advanced trainees. So, you know, really what I've been trying to do is um, really bridge that gap because as much as I take like great pride in diving into the research and I'm building my knowledge base on these complex topics, I think much of my success, like I was, I was speaking about this with Jeff off air uh, this past week, as well as with some of my other, um, you know, mentors within the space. I think one of my greatest um, utilities or greatest skills. And also the reason for a lot of my success with clients has come down to who I am as a coach and as a person. And the fact that I not only understand, you know, all these complex topics, but I also understand the art of coaching and I'm able to take these complex X's and O's of programming and physique optimization, and then suit it to the individual I'm working with. And really when it comes down to it, there isn't a lack of intelligence in this industry. There's a lot of individuals who know a lot and can spit out a lot of facts but they lack the ability to actually apply these principles in the real world. So anytime I speak on a topic, especially at a seminar like the Physique Education Collective, we're really trying to take researchers. Like we have Alan Aragon, a researcher, a prominent researcher, Scott Stevenson, like these guys with PhDs and doctorates. And then we also have coaches like myself, Jason Theobald, and many others. And we're really trying to bridge that gap and really show people, listen, this is what the literature says, but this is how you apply it. So whenever I try to, you know, cover you know, or or anytime that I go into a seminar and I'm going to cover a topic, I want to not only cover the literature, but I also want to share my experiences having applied these methods in my own practice with hundreds of clients. So I really find that there's great utility out of that. And I even find when I jump on a podcast with you and I share my experiences, whether it be 
our physique transformation together, like our coaching relationship, us working together, or even like the experiences I've had with other individuals, that that really does impact people on a greater scale. It's not just about the facts. It's not just about the percentages and the statistics that I could rattle off the top of my head. It's also about the fact that I've seen this work in practice and you can go on my Instagram or you can go to Jeremiah's page and you can see it for yourself. Yeah, I couldn't agree more, man. And I think that it's easy to get, like when we look at coaching, I think it's so easy to just get caught up in the X's and O's where so much of it is kind of speaking to the soft skills side of things there where like, I know one, I will say like the thing that's helped me the most in my ability to help others get results is less like another course, another certification. Now I love knowledge. I love like digging deep into these things, but also digging into like understanding emotional intelligence better or like books like atomic habits or coaching for performance and things of that nature where it's really like okay how do we actually talk to people and get these things to click and like build connections with people which and i know i think we talked about this in the last episode but even like in our our coaching relationship that's like i think another thing that you also do exceptionally well is like i'm always uh, honestly surprised like it's not necessarily what i expect going into our coaching relationship like the ability like outside of just like the like you do a great job of like, Hey, in your life outside of just like your physique transformation, like here's like other ways I can help you. And other ways I want to meet you where you're at. Just like building connection, that relationship. I feel like that's such an important part of it that so many people overlook too. Absolutely. I think, you know, um, when I first got into this space and I think this could be said about many coaches. And so I'll, I'll be honest and transparent and I'll, I'll say I was guilty with it. I only focus on those X's and O's. And that's why I always say right. that to me, coaching isn't about the X's, just the X's and O's of macros and calories or within training sets and reps. It is about programming those variables. But the thing that's differentiated me between a programmer and a coach and an actual practitioner is the fact that I connect with people on an emotional level. I relate to them. I want to know about the real world. I want to know about your personal life. And, you know, sometimes, you know, I'll, I'll be honest, sometimes I, I fear that I'll overstep the boundaries, but honestly, there's been so many times that I've just dug in deeper. I've asked more questions and I've just really asked someone to open up. And, and at the same time, I've been vulnerable and I've opened up myself. Like, you know, there's been situations within our own coaching relationship where I could tell you were um, a little hesitant about speaking on a topic. So I shared my own stuff that I generally wouldn't share with someone I wasn't connected with, but I let down my guard to allow you to feel more comfortable letting down yours. And not only does that help us from a connection um, you know, perspective, because coaching is a collaborative effort. This isn't a dictatorship. This isn't, I put in these programming variables, you follow them to a T or we don't work together. That's not how it should be. And unfortunately, many coaches do operate in that. It's like, listen, you either follow what the sheets say or you're out. And, and right. that's those that don't have a great retention rate. And they also don't have a great uh, reputation within this industry. So they become known for that. It's their way or their highway. This is a collaborative effort. And within that, it's getting to know the client. It's getting to know their psychological proclivities. It's getting to know their preferences, their lifestyle, and seeing everything else outside of the gym. Because really, you know, it, it's I'm, I'm very focused on training and nutrition and things of that sort. However, we only spend a very small percentage of our days, our weeks, our months, our years in the gym actually training. But the vast majority of what drives progress or inhibits it, and and honestly, what I've seen in my own practice is most of the anchors or the bottlenecks within someone's ability to make progress, not only week in and week out, but year in and year out, is their lifestyle factors, their stress levels, their um, psychological bottlenecks like rumination or really getting hyper fixated on things or paralysis by analysis. It's all of those variables that I'm able to dig into. And a lot of times, you know, sometimes I'll 
consult with other coaches and I'll like, you know, uh, encourage them to take a deeper dive. And they ask me, listen, isn't that more time consuming? Aren't, don't you feel like, and, and sometimes they ask me, don't you feel like um, you're wasting your time? And, and sometimes it is a frivolous effort. Sometimes with certain individuals, you're really trying to dig and they just don't want to give you anymore. And that's when you right. need to know as a coach, listen, this isn't my role. And maybe for this individual, that's not what they want. They just want pure programming. They want to be told what to do and they don't want to open up more. But for those that right. do, I do find that we generally get better. We have a better relationship first and foremost. And then long-term, we make better progress because I know about everything. I have an all-encompassing view of what's going on in their life. And that's where I can make more objective and correct assessments, adjustments, and changes within their program to consider the lifestyle factors within their life. Because if I'm only considering their training performance and their nutritional accuracy or their uh, adherence and compliance to a nutrition plan, that's just discarding and disregarding so many other components of their life that could be influencing their nutrition, their training, um, you know, their recovery, all these other um, objective and subjective metrics. Yeah, absolutely. And I know we were speaking a couple episodes ago about how the clients that have been with us for like how important it is to stick with a coach for a long period of time to truly see the results you want. And I think that's, again, like from a client perspective, now it's not at all like your coach doesn't have to be your therapist or anything of that nature, mm -hmm. nor like do we want to pretend to be therapists. But again, like I think like getting to, to know the client, getting to know their lifestyle outside of that, that is what allows us to really like get the result you want long term, right? Whereas I'm I'm always amazed at the amount of people like on the initial call that we have who like will talk through like man macros just like don't work for me very well. I've worked with other coaches who like do macro coaching and it just doesn't work for me. And I like talk through like okay so like what support did you get? And it'll often be like yeah they basically just gave me macros and said good luck. Just gave me numbers. Like, right. And it's like it's completely understandable that that would be a struggle where we have to, to bring it back to your original point, like we have to teach application too, where it has to be so much more in depth with like, okay, where are we struggling? How are we feeling within your training? How's your digestion? And then if we can tie these back to like food sources and different options and things like there's so much more education there, but I'm always surprised at how much of the application is just forgotten. And it is just based around the numbers. Absolutely. No, I, I think it's unfortunate aspect of this industry, but then it also allows those of us who do take the extra step that do go the extra mile with their clientele to really change the paradigm in which coaching is viewed as well as that individual's viewpoint on coaching. So I've had so many individuals and I, I've shared this with you previously. I always do a statistical analysis of all my coaching metrics and also my intake forms throughout the course of the year. So at the end of every year, I look back on certain metrics, you know, how did, you know, where did the vast majority of my leads come in? And this past year it was referrals. And then how many uh, previous coaches did an individual have prior to coming to me. So in 2021, um, it was 5.6 coaches. This past year was a little bit less. It was around five coaches on average. However, that's five individuals, that's other professionals yeah. within this field that they've invested in. And also keep in mind that my subsect or my demographic of coaching or clients that I work with are generally more advanced. So they've been in this game for a long period of time. You know, we're talking minimum five years of training for the most part. That doesn't mean every client I work with. It, it doesn't mean that I don't work with more beginners, but I do tend to get intermediates and advanced individuals who have been in this, who have competed before. So they've had a lot of coaches and I can't tell you how many times, more times than not, they've had negative experiences and it's really unfortunate to see that. So I know I'm working past some of their mental limitations on coaching or some of their preconceived notions of what a coach is. And I really want to shatter that viewpoint because a lot of these individuals got into coaching five, six years ago in terms of who they started working with initially. And this industry has changed so much. And I know it was out there because I was in the scene at that time and I was right. getting clients from these very similar coaches. And so I know the low quality 
the lack of um, attention to detail and just really not going out of their way. So they had this, I guess, bad taste in their mouth. And I really try to change that with my own coaching. That doesn't mean that my coaching is best for everyone, but what it means is I really do try to go above and beyond for every single client that I work with. Absolutely. I love it, man. All right, dude. We have filled people in a lot on what's going on in our lives and one of the last couple episodes, and we're pretty far behind on questions. So let's go ahead and dig into a couple here so we don't have to leave too many people behind for another couple of weeks. I'm going to hit you with the first one, which is follow-up question from a recent Q&A on Living Lean. You guys recently spoke about how following a keto diet during a fat loss phase lowers thyroid production, but is that due to the deficit or lack of carbs? All right. So this question was asked by a listener of this show and uh, it was spurred on from a recent podcast. I believe it is actually the last podcast that will be in this feed, but it Mm -hmm. is the podcast you guys will see in the title. It is something to do with the carnivore diet, which thus led us to speaking about other fad diets, keto diets, low carbohydrate diets, and some of the negative ramifications and some of the hormonal downsides and drawbacks of these very low carb dietary approaches that include carnivore diets, keto diets, and things of that sort. And now in the case of a fat loss phase where we're in a calorie deficit, we can see a downregulation in thyroid production and the conversion of T4 to metabolically active T3. And that's for a variety of reasons. You know, this can come from the energy deficit itself. It can come from a lack of micronutrients in the diet, like selenium, iodine, and zinc that are necessary for proper thyroid hormone production and synthesis. But it can also come as a result of a lack of carbohydrates in the diet itself. But really when it came down to it, I was engaging with this listener and they wanted to know, listen, is it just the energy deficit in itself? Or do we see that like at energy balance? Like, do you see this at maintenance calories? Um, so I did want to cover that specifically because on the previous podcast, if you guys go back to that, you know, you guys will be able to see our thoughts on that in and of itself in terms of a calorie deficit. But we also have research that shows that even if a person isn't in an energy deficit, thyroid production and specifically T3. So think about it, that metabolically active form of T3 that actually binds to receptors and exerts its action, um, can be downregulated when someone is following a keto diet due to consuming chronically low levels of carbohydrates. So I know there's a study by Finney, I believe it's from the 80s, where they had participants follow a baseline diet that include, included carbohydrates. And so that was their initial lead-in. And then they transitioned them into a ketogenic diet where they had them eat at their maintenance calorie intake and they monitored them you know, day-to-day and week-to-week to ensure that they didn't lose weight. So they knew they were in energy balance. Then on top of that, so no energy deficit, first and foremost, they also supplemented them with vitamins and minerals. So they weren't suffering from any micronutrient deficiencies. So if you guys think back to what I said, this could be due to, you know, thyroid down regulation could come from an energy deficit, a lack of micronutrients, and then also a lack of carbohydrate availability. So in this specific study, they accounted for all of that, except for the carbohydrate availability. They obviously didn't replete carbohydrates because they had them in a ketogenic state. And what they found was that each week on the ketogenic diet, the subject's T3 levels dropped more and more. And by the end of the study, T3 had decreased by close to 50% in four weeks, even though they weren't in an energy deficit and they didn't lose any weight. So this wasn't due to being an energy deficit. It was due to being in a state of low energy or uh, it wasn't due to being in a state of low energy availability. It was more so due to the lack of glucose availability or due to the lack of carbs. So this pretty much shows that, yes, you know, there are many factors that could downregulate thyroid hormone production, but one of them independently could be a lack of carbohydrate intake. So this is where, you know, if you were to get your labs, if you guys are following a ketogenic diet, 
or you are following a very low carbohydrate diet, you may see this come back on your blood work and wonder, you know, listen, I haven't been, you know, you could be keto bulking, for instance, and eating in a surplus and, and gaining weight. However, you might still see some of these biomarkers thrown off. So it's it's important to realize that, yes, there are some confounding variables that could cause a downregulation in thyroid production, because even if you're in an energy deficit and you're taking in sufficient amount of carbohydrates, which we can kind of argue because anytime you're in an energy deficit, you're probably eating less than you'd like. However, this could come independently just from the lack of carbohydrates in the diet. Okay. So how would you, this is going to be a very hard thing to generalize, but how would you know, like what's an adequate level of carbohydrates? Is there like a general recommendation you would aim for there? So this is going to be extremely person dependent. It's going to be based on their total energy needs going to be based on their activity levels, their training style, and their training intensity, as well as the frequency of their training. And then also the biofeedback of the individual. So how are your pumps in the gym? How is your training performance? Do you have that next gear? Because what we really see, even in in trials where we look at ketogenic diets versus carbohydrate-containing diets. So there was a a study a few years ago by uh, Kaisel, I believe, 2020. And what they looked at was um, eight week diet of being in a ketogenic, it was actually a cyclical ketogenic diet. So they actually did replete carbohydrates. So what they did was five days in a ketogenic diet, two days of carbohydrate refeed compared to a traditional diet. And what they showed was not only was there a significant difference in fat mass loss as compared to lean body mass retention, meaning that they lost the same amount of body weight. Now keep in mind, mm-hmm. body weight is different than the actual uh, different storage depots. So in the traditional diet group, they lost, I believe in total, they both lost 4.5 kilograms of fat, uh, fat mass or, um, of body mass. However, in the traditional diet that had carbohydrates throughout the entire course of the week, they lost four kilograms of that from fat mass. And they lost about 0.4 of that from lean body mass. So a very small percentage of lean body mass loss. However, in the ketogenic diet group that did the cyclical ketogenic diet. So they did five days of keto diet. So very low carbohydrates, I believe it was under 50 grams of carbohydrates. And then two days of carbohydrate refeeding, they lost, I believe it was 1.9 kilograms of fat mass, and then they lost 1.8 kilograms of fat-free mass. So about four times the uh, proportion of fat-free mass loss that we saw in the other group, they also looked at training performance and they saw decrements in strength improvements, as well as in total workload capacity or total volume in the ketogenic diet group. So this shows that there are some implications that could come from the lack of carbohydrates in the diet, especially these individuals were resistant training. They were on a regimented training program throughout the entire eight-week study. So really, we have to look at the energy demands. Really, what I, I look at when I have a client come to me is, we want to ensure that the supply meets the demand. So if you're someone that's engaging in glycolytic training, anaerobic training, whether that be resistance training, Metcons from CrossFit, uh, you're doing HIIT training. We want to make sure that you have ample glucose or ample carbohydrate availability to fuel those activities that rely off of um, glycolysis or anaerobic metabolism. So really it's going to come down to the individual. And that is where we could look at blood work. And if thyroid is down-regulated and you're at energy balance, that could be an indication. Listen, if the one common denominator is you are under fueling yourself in terms of carbohydrates and you're engaging in all these other activities and your training performance is, is decreasing and you're having trouble getting to that top gear to really having like that uh, top end level of training performance, especially in your top sets and 
other aspects of your training program within the gym, that could be an indication. Listen, we need to increase your carbohydrate content in the diet, or we need to do some macro manipulation. So generally, if I have a client, they want to stay at energy balance. They really, they want to recomp, for instance, I will just simply macro swap. So essentially what I'm doing is on training days, I'm going to take, and I'm going to titrate down their fat intake and replace that with an isocaloric amount of carbohydrates, just so I keep them at energy balance, but I'm starting to get more fuel into their system from carbohydrates. And I'm also upregulating regulating uh, an enzyme called PDH, which is pyruvate dehydrogenase. Because what we see in ketogenic diet states is that when someone goes into a ketogenic diet, and there's multiple trials that have looked at this. Trent Stellingworth, who's an amazing researcher, has done multiple studies on this, as well as InPlay at all 2018. And what they looked at was periods of, I believe, three to five days of carbohydrate depletion were going into a ketogenic diet. So a high fat, low carbohydrate diet, it downregulated this enzyme called PDH. And what PDH essentially is, is the gatekeeper for glycolysis. So uh, carbohydrate metabolism. So what they would do is in these trials is it would take and put individuals, resistant trained athletes on a low carbohydrate, high fat diet for three to five days. And then they would replete them or refeed them with carbohydrates on the weekends you know, in a series after to see, can we get someone keto adapted, but also able to utilize both, you know, fats for fuel as well as carbohydrates for fuel. Well, when they looked at their training performance, they saw, still saw decrements in power and strength performance. So then they did muscle biopsies, I believe, to look at, was it a lack of glycogen storage? Did they not give them enough carbohydrates to actually replete and replenish glycogen stores? Because those days that they were in a ketogenic state, they were depleting glycogen stores. When they did that, they saw that they were actually, you know, fully topped off in terms of glycogen. So it wasn't a lack of glycogen storage in terms of muscle and liver. It was the fact that they had a downregulation in this enzyme, which allowed them to tap in and actually utilize that glycogen. So they had enough in the fuel reserve essentially. They just didn't have the access to them. So that shows a lack of metabolic flexibility. And that's why even in some ketogenic diet studies, we see what's called non-pathological insulin resistance, which is where because we're at a low level of carbohydrate availability, the muscles become insulin resistant. And what that does is it preferably saves and reserves any circulating glucose in the blood because the body's still going to make glucose from hepatic glucose production, which comes from the liver. But any small amount of carbohydrates that they're taking in or any glucose available is being reserved for the brain because that's our number one priority to fuel the nervous system. And the brain preferentially runs off, you know, glucose. And so then it becomes, they become insulin resistant at the level of muscle. So I've also seen this in blood work with clients that have followed a ketogenic diet where they'll actually have elevated HbA1c. And they'll have sometimes elevated uh, fasted blood glucose. And then also if they take an OGT test, which is an oral glucose tolerance test, which is essentially just a carbohydrate bolus in the morning, they'll do um, a, they'll put them in a fasted state. They'll give them 75 to 80 grams of carbohydrates, and they'll test their postprandial glycemic excursions, which really just mean your blood sugar um, rises and peaks after. And they'll show that a lot of these in, of these individuals that have been in a ketogenic diet state look insulin resistant on these tests because their body has stopped being able to access carbohydrates and process them correctly due to, um, it's almost like a maladaptation. Remember everything we do in the body is an adaptation, whether it be dieting or training, everything, you know, if you underfuel yourself, there's metabolic adaptations. If you over, you know, if you start ramping up your intake, you're going to have metabolic adaptations in the opposite direction. But the same thing with our macronutrients, if we completely, you know, um, deplete ourselves of a certain macronutrient, our body is going to be less used to being exposed to it. And then less use uh, is going to downregulate its ability to process and utilize it. 
So an application, is that something that you actually see in coaching very often, like form of insulin resistance like that? So I can't say I've seen it often. I have seen it though. And the reason I don't believe that I've seen it often is because I don't generally have a lot of people that are like staunch, like ketogenic dieters or low carbohydrate dieters, but I will say that I have seen it. And then I've also seen individuals that they just, they don't feel great um, as a result of including carbohydrates in the diet. And often Mm -hmm. it's because they think that they're carbohydrate intolerant or they think that they don't run off well on carbs, but really it's a lack of metabolic flexibility. So metabolic flexibility is the entire concept of being able to switch readily between fuel substrates. So for instance, when we're engaged in low intensity activities or when we're resting or we're sleeping, we should be able to run off fats because that is our low intensity fuel fuel substrate. So when you're fasting, when you're doing a fasted walk or fasted cardio, when you're doing low level intensity cardio, um, or when you're just running your resting metabolic rate, that should run off fat metabolism because fat uh, provides us with a ton of fuel. However, it's really, um, it's a slow energy process. So it's hard to tap in and create ATP out of fat. However, during higher intensity activities, glycolytic activities or anaerobic activities, when we need that higher gauge, glucose is the quickest acting fuel that we can tap into and and call upon. And that's where we really want to be able to cover the spectrum. So I always say like, there is no one size all fits diet, nor is there one best macronutrient. It's being able to readily switch between the two. And really part of metabolic health is being able to readily access your fats and then readily access carbohydrate metabolism. But a lot of times if you you go to one end of the spectrum in terms of these extreme diets. So if you did a zero fat diet or you did a zero carbohydrate diet, you're going to run out of runway on the opposite end of the spectrum. So we even see in certain studies that the variance in terms of what people can access in terms of fat is highly variable. So for instance, they've done research where they've taken people fasted and they brought them into the lab in a fasted condition and had them do low level intensity aerobic work. So think about your fasted cardio in the morning. And generally, right. because it's an aerobic activity requiring oxygen, it would run off fat metabolism. However, they've seen that it's varied so much that between people will utilize fat between 23 to 93% of the time, there's a 70% variation between individuals. So that means if you're at the lower end of that range, say that you utilize 23% of fat during aerobic activity, the majority of the fuel that you're utilizing is actually carbohydrates, which you should be reserving for your higher intensity activities. But this shows a lack of metabolic flexibility, meaning you're unable to tap into fats and readily utilize them, whether it be body fat or it be uh, dietary fat in order to fuel these activities. So you're depleting your glycogen stores, even at lower intensities. So really what we want to ensure is that a person is able to uh, be metabolically flexible on both ends of the spectrum. They're able to use fat readily and they feel that it's not, you know, these are the type of individuals that they can't go a few hours without a meal because they feel like they're crashing or they can't fast for a few hours or, you know, they, they feel lightheaded when they're doing aerobic work. And that's not due to being in a massive energy deficit or lacking sleep or any other confounding variables. And then also we want to be able to take in a bolus of carbohydrates and not feel like, Hey, we're going to go, we're going to crash or go right to bed. We want to be able to take those in, go to the gym and get pumps and, and feel great. And so we want to be able to cover both ends of the spectrum and really display great metabolic flexibility. And one way to do that is to avoid the extremes. Okay. Okay. So and you can let me know if this is like, yo, this is a completely different podcast. I don't think we've actually talked about metabolic flexibility too much, which kind of surprises me. Um, so for someone that is like that individual, hey, I feel like I'm carb intolerant. Would you just approach that? Like, let's just take a balanced diet and it'll improve over time. We have maybe like higher fat and higher carb days. How would you approach that? Absolutely. So multiple ways. So the first thing that I like people to do, and, and you're very familiar with this, is I like testing their fasted blood glucose as well as their postprandial blood glucose. 
So fasted blood glucose is more of an indicator of your liver glycogen storage or your, your hepatic glycogen or hepatic glucose production. Whereas postprandial postprandial blood sugar is more of an indication of your insulin sensitivity at the level of the muscle. Is the muscle disposing and uptaking glucose after meals? So I want to check both of those. Then I also want to check their bio. So those are objective markers. Then I also want to check your subjective markers. How are your pumps in the gym? Are there any indications of insulin resistance? How do you feel after carbohydrate containing meal? Is it carbohydrates in general, or is it that you're having this big bolus of sugar? You're having, you know, um, you know, Skittles or something. And that's the issues that you've had with a crash. So a lot of times what I, I see with a lot of individuals is that they'll associate an experience that they've had with a certain food source with that indicating that they're carbohydrate intolerant. So for instance, Uh they might have some processed food and not feel great. What a lot of times they don't realize, like they'll say, Hey, I can't have cookies or I can't have, you know, cakes or whatever it may be not realizing that that's a vast, first of all, it's a very energy dense food source. It's going to be hypercaloric. So meaning a massive amount of calories, but it usually has about an equal amount of calories from both carbohydrates and fats. And oftentimes it has a huge bolus of, of fats. Also, it's not satiating. So oftentimes they overeat those, those type of meals and they take in so many calories that they get something like a post-meal somnolence, meaning they feel tired after a meal. So then we have to look at what are the food sources that you're utilizing? Are you taking in, is it the dose? Is it the food source or is it the timing of this? And really we need to be able to isolate these variables and see how someone reacts. So that's where I'll start. If someone is say they believe they're carbohydrate intolerant, we have to realize that someone's psychology plays a massive role in this. So there's actually a study by Park. This is a little, you know, this is related, but this was in type two diabetics. And this shows the placebo effect of what you believe a food to be. And then the physiological implications that they could have. So they did this milkshake study. And what they did was they gave, they had people come into the lab on two different occasions. And what they did was they changed the label of the milkshake. And so in one of the milkshakes, it was labeled as a high sugar milkshake or a high sugar shake. And it had 31 grams of of sugar. And then the other shake, the next condition, they had those same individuals come in and they said they gave them a sugar-free version. So zero grams. In both cases, it had 15.5 grams of sugar. So it was right mm-hmm. in the middle. When they looked at their post-meal blood glucose excursions in the state where they thought it was 31 grams, where it was labeled as high sugar, they saw a 20 or 30 milligram per deciliter um, higher peak value in blood glucose than they did in the zero sugar condition. So just the fact that these individuals, they were type two diabetics, they know that their body doesn't react well to sugar. Just the fact that it was labeled high sugar, the psychological impact of that, of them worrying about their blood glucose actually increase their blood glucose. But let's think about it from a mechanistic standpoint. If you're stressed and you're, you know that, or you think in your mind that this is a high carbohydrate, high sugar containing beverage that you would know, you know, in other aspects of your life would give you a sugar high and would make you crash. You're going to get that because not only maybe that wouldn't have the physiological ramification if you knew your body was only taking in half the amount of sugar that that drink actually contained, but that stress response, which is going to cause cortisol to be elevated and then you to dump uh, glucose from hepatic glucose production. So you're increasing glucose from two areas because you're insulin resistant. You're not shutting off hepatic glucose production, meaning glucose production at the liver, but also you're getting this glucose influx from the drink itself. So now it's raising blood sugar, despite the fact that in both conditions, it was the exact same sugar sugar content. So we also always have to think about the psychology of these individuals. So that's where I'll look to, Hey, are there any carbohydrate sources that you've utilized? You've had a good experience with. It could be a sweet potato. I have a lot of people that come from like a paleo background. So they're utilizing, you know, more of your starchy carbohydrates that are, um, more complex 
for instance, and they kind of like skirt around like simple sugars. So that's fine. So we'll utilize that. We'll see how your body responds. So we'll utilize it around the peri-workout window when you're going to be most insulin sensitive and we'll monitor your biofeedback. And slowly but surely, I like to titrate up to a level that they feel comfortable with, but also we see other indications that align with the fact that they're not only processing it well, meaning their fasted blood glucose and their postprandial uh, blood glucose readings look within range, but also they feel great. And also a lot of times within that, someone that's come from a very low carbohydrate state has been under fueling themselves and they've they've lacked the ability to really tap in and really advance their training performance. So oftentimes I'll notice with these individuals that they've had a lot of training plateaus or that they can't tolerate a lot of volume in the gym. So little by little, we're titrating up their calories in the form of carbohydrates, but then we're also utilizing that to fuel the, the resistance training sessions. So they're getting like a double positive. They're getting more energy availability in the system. Then they're getting better training performance. And they're realizing they can handle this. And then it's actually having positive effects on their performance, their energy levels and how they feel. And so now they're more open to the the idea or the concept of increasing carbohydrates. And this doesn't mean that this individual has to go from being a low carbohydrate dieter to a high carbohydrate, low fat dieter, but we can meet them more in the middle. And really what I'm looking to get them to is a level at which we're meeting between what's optimal for their performance, their body composition, their health goals, and then what's practical for their psychological proclivities, their preferences, and their lifestyle. Absolutely crush that. I don't think I really have anything else to add there, but very good explanation. Okay, cool. Next up we have, what do you think is the least amount of training someone can do and still make progress? This is really going to depend on a lot of variables. I'm not sure. Do you have more context on this question or did you go back and forth any further? I did not. Okay. Okay. So, so I mean, no, all good. Your training advancement is definitely going to be one big aspect of this, right? The more advanced we are, typically the harder it is going to be for us to continue to progress. And to an extent, we'll be, need a larger stimulus, be that like a heavier load, more intensity, more volume. Um, also, how we're quantifying progress is going to be like what type of progress specifically you're looking to make is going to be a big, big variable here, right? Are we more focused on strength um, and more of those neurological adaptations where so much of it is like us actually getting better at the skill of the movement, right? If you look at like power lifters or like, I don't know. Do you know who max tuning is? I don't know why this is who comes to mind. Okay. Anyways, this is like a, in the YouTube space, like with like Christian Guzman and those guys, but like super skinny dude, but it just has a crazy deadlift, crazy squat. And like his constant joke is like, I'm the, I have the smallest quads for the biggest squat. Like there's a lot of power (laughs) lifters and guys like that, where it is so much of strength is going to be a neurological adaptation, right? Whereas hypertrophy, like to an extent, these things go hand in hand, typically like as a muscle grows, it will also get stronger. But again, like the specific adaptation we're chasing there is going to be an important part of this as well. And then finally, there are a couple different levers we can pull here, right? Where we have, when it comes to your training, we have both the training intensity. So in this case, um, think like your proximity to failure and the amount of training volume that we're doing, right? So, I mean, on one end, like if you are a very busy individual, you just don't have time to do a ton of volume within your training. We could probably progress very well on relatively low volume and just taking a lot more of your sets to the house, right? Training consistently much closer to failure, right? So again, like volume and intensity kind of exist on a spectrum there where we can push one higher and keep the other a little bit lower. And either way, we can continue to see muscle growth. Now past that, I think, I think kind of the answer they're looking for though, is like, Hey, probably about how many hard sets per muscle group 
per week can we do to progress? Which is a pretty hard question to answer. Um, I would say for most people, I think with sufficient intensity. So again, we're training in a very close proximity to failure for a considerable amount of time. We can probably see good progress with our major muscle groups. So again, or I would, I would look at this probably more like patterns. So like a squat or a lunge, a hinge, a push and a pull, we can probably training those about somewhere between, I would say six to 10 hard sets per week is probably a pretty good ballpark where again, if the sufficient intensity is there, we can continue to make good progress or decent progress. It's going to, but so much of that is going to be varied by the individual, but the intensity, like if we are going to take a much lower volume approach. And I mean, maybe we could even go, it's such an interesting thing too, though, because like, I very much think volume is kind of on this like bell shaped curve, right? Where it seems like at the start, if you're a beginner, just like shit walking for some people or like yeah. walking on an incline will help you build muscle. Right. And doing a couple sets per week, you will see significant progress. And then, but on the flip side, like as you get to be more advanced and you can be so much more in tune with like exactly within each set and each rep, you can get so much more tension and so much more stimulus from the load that you're doing again. Like typically it seems that more intermediates typically like as they haven't quite mastered those, I don't, I don't know if intermediates actually like the right word there, but like people that have some training, training experience, they're past the inner stage, but not quite to like the intermediate plus range yet. Typically I found like need a little bit more volume because the movement quality is good, but it's not like excellent yet. Whereas again, as people get more advanced, we can typically be so efficient and productive within each set and just our ability to execute well that we can get more stimulus from less training again. So again, like I know like Brian Borstein, for example, I know he, I've heard him talk about this a lot where like his training volume has gone down significantly. And I know like, I think like his hamstrings specialization right now is still only something like six to nine sets per week, man. That's a really hard number. That's really hard to put a number on, but I would say in general, probably somewhere between five to 10 sets. What's your take on that? Yeah, I actually, uh, I really like this question because I, it allows us to have like a thought experiment. And I think this is an opportunity for us as coaches. And for, we work with different populations. We have different experiences, both as trainees ourselves, and then also with who we've worked with. So for instance, in my case, I've worked with a lot of advanced individuals, but then I've also worked with a ton of lifestyle clients. So I've seen like the opposite ends of the spectrum completely. I've literally seen your professional bodybuilders and worked with them. And then also I've seen your gen population clients who are just getting into the gym. And literally we're doing one set and they're growing. So this is mm -hmm. such a, you know, an interesting conversation, but really when we look at it, there is a dose response relationship between volume and hypertrophy. So, you know, when we look at that, we look at the research, doing more volume can lead to more muscle growth. However, that doesn't mean that we can't get a good amount of muscle growth from lower volume programs. So when I think about this question and I think about the concept of how little can we do or what's the least amount of training someone can do and still make progress, I'm thinking in the context of not maximal progress. This is not getting the maximum gains, but still getting some gains. So I guess, you know, kind of what um, Mike Gersertel and the guys from RP would refer to as minimum effective volume. And I know they have their own landmarks, but I'm going to take this from a little bit of a different concept because I know that they use pump and these different indicators of disruption to indicate what that is. However, I, I think that we can find a middle ground between what the research says and then also our ex experiences. So I'll share both. And so I think first, if we consider the research that we have on training volume and hypertrophy, we look at that first, and then we need to consider the individual traits of the client that we're working with. So 
in, you know, in, if we go back to like 2017, the meta-analysis by Schoenfeld that so many cite, and this is actually what they're referring to when a lot of people make that general recommendation within our community of training and muscle growth with 10 plus sets per week. If you actually look at the meta-analysis, and this is something that I had an in-depth conversation with Eric Helms about, is when we actually look at the divergent outcomes of that meta-analysis, it wasn't like 10 or bust. It wasn't like you had to hit 10 or more. It was 10 or more maximized things. So if you actually look at the breakdown, which they looked at volume, they found that 64% of hypertrophy outcomes came from just one to four sets per muscle per week. Then in addition to that, if you did five to nine sets per week, you got 84% of the muscle growth outcomes. And then if you wanted to maximize muscle growth, you would train each muscle group with 10 plus sets per week. But there's a couple caveats that we have to take into consideration when we look at this meta-analysis, because a lot of people just kind of throw that out there. And I understand, you know, it's an easy way to give a recommendation that is evidence-based, but we really need mm-hmm. to look into the methodology, the the different aspects of that Uh, meta-analysis and really see where were they coming to with that. So first and foremost, I think it's really important to touch on the fact that most of the training studies that were analyzed were done on untrained subjects. And just like you and I just hit on previously, we know that when someone is new to resistance training, you know, they're much more sensitive to the stimulus of training and can gain muscle with even very, very little amounts of, of work. So very minimal amounts of volume, but also how they counted training volume was based on um, like a collective. So it was a one-to-one ratio. So for instance, if they did a bench press, it counted for one set for the pecs or one set for the chest, one set for the deltoids and one set for the triceps. So if we look at maximizing outcomes, if you were, most people don't count volume like that. I personally don't count volume like that, but if you were to make an evidence-based recommendation, you are counting volume like that. Cause that's how they do it in all the research. And so 10 plus sets, it, that could be six sets of a press and four sets of a pushdown. Now, if you were to ask someone in the gym, that would maximize outcomes, technically, according to the research. That'd be 10 sets per week for your triceps. However, if you were to ask someone and they were only doing four sets of a tricep isolation work, uh, movement, they would say, I'm, I'm doing four working sets per week. However, in the research, that would count as 10. So there is this divergent between what we see in the real world and how they count in the research. But I think it's also important to realize that there's other confounding variables and things we got to take into consideration in the real world. So that's what the research says. But in terms of working with an individual, we need to realize that the amount of sets needed to grow muscle is going to be heavily dependent on the quality of those sets. So, you know, are you doing these, are you really executing these properly and really targeting or actually hitting the target musculature or are you just going through the, mo- the movement? Um, you, we need to look at the relative intensity or the proximity to failure in those sets. So if you're taking the sets of the house, you're doing zero RIR or failure training, that's going to be much more stimulative per set than if you're staying many reps in reserve and doing the same amount of sets. And also the exercise selection that you use for each muscle. And then beyond those training programming variables that influence volume, like your proximity to failure, your exercise selection, your exercise execution, I think we also have to realize that there's other factors within someone's day-to-day life that will influence the minimum effective dose of training for one person compared to another. And that's going to be things like their nutritional status. You know, are they eating a sufficient amount of calories? Because if you're in an energy deficit, you may not be able to maximize gains with a very low amount of training volume. Um, If they're eating enough protein and if they're actually, you know, distributing it over the day to maximize muscle protein synthesis and then other lifestyle factors, like is your sleep dialed in, is your stress being managed? So when it comes to someone's minimum effective dose, I believe it's going to be really dependent person to person, but I generally find that even in advanced individuals, if everything else within their lifestyle is dialed in, so their sleep is, is really, you know, um, 
they're in a really good place in terms of their sleep quality, their sleep quantity, their stress is managed. They are eating a sufficient amount of calories. Their protein is of ample uh, amounts as well as timing and distribution that a lot of them can make, you know, good progress training muscle groups between five to nine sets per week if everything else is accounted for. But realize that's if everything else is dialed in. And I'm, I'm going off of my experience with individuals that have everything. Most people, they don't have a lot of these variables dialed in. So it really is going to depend person to person. And that's, you know, I, I know a lot of people don't like that answer. You know, it depends. They want a direct answer, but this is why there's such variation person to person. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. I feel like it's hard to, to add too much more to that without getting deeper into like, for so, I mean, I feel like the further this conversation, we have to dig into for you as an individual, again, where are you at? How are you managing all these other factors? But I feel like that's a good conclusion. And I would agree. I think like that, like five to nine, five to 10 sets is if with these other factors dialed in, it's probably a good route for minimum progress, but still moving the needle forward. Absolutely. All right. Next one I have for you. Do you think we need to use different phases within our training if building muscle is the goal? All right. So this was about specific phases for hypertrophy. So we're just going to focus on that. We're not trying to be a multimodal athlete or a hybrid athlete. So really, you know, I think if our primary goal is hypertrophy, so growing muscle, and really our full intention or our full goal with training is to build muscle, we should spend the majority of our time training, like our training time and our yearly periodization model focus on pursuing that ad adaptation and on building muscle. And, you know, I know, you know, and I've worked with coaches like this, and I also know many in this industry and that they're fans of programming in like full strength blocks within their training. But mm -hmm. I've utilized that myself. I've utilized that with other clients in previous years. And I just haven't seen that yield the best results or better results rather in terms of long-term progress from a hypertrophy perspective. So unless I was to have a client who has, you know, changed their primary goal of training to strength outcomes, like they really want to progress a specific lift or they want to be a hybrid athlete, or they want to, you know, transition between, you know, bodybuilding and then also powerlifting, I'm not going to plan in a phase, uh, purely focus on just strength training or like neurological training. Right. I also feel like when it really comes down to it, hypertrophy is such a forgiving stimulus where we can gain muscle between, you know, anywhere between like five or six and 30 reps. And we can utilize both compound and isolation exercise. We could use free weights and machines. There's so much variation that we could utilize that if a client does want to work on strength, we could easily fit it in and we could do some low rep, high load training within a hypertrophy block in and of itself and kind of get the best of both worlds. So you guys, you know, we could utilize, you know, a five by five or something to really, you know, focus on that strength development in a specific key lift without taking away from their actual, like not without going into a specific block just for that. So I don't tend to utilize whether it be specific neurological or strength phases, or even purely metabolic phases for clients looking to maximize hypertrophy, because, you know, when we really look at it, and especially when people come to me, they have a very specific goal. So they want to, you know, improve their body composition. They want to get bigger, you know, and they want to accrue muscle tissue. And really when I think about it is everything has a cost to benefit ratio. So we really got to look at that. There's a time cost and then an investment cost. And if something isn't, you know, driving me forward in terms of the actual goal that I have with a client, I don't see the use in, in utilizing it. And here's the thing I've never seen where I've utilized a strength block or a metabolic block where it's actually gotten someone further along in their yearly periodization model than when I haven't utilized it. So unless that person it's fitting their preference, it's fitting, you know, maybe they want to, they're, they're burnt out on hypertrophy training and they want to shift to a new goal by all means that's fitting their psychological needs and their desires and, and just helping them get a mental reset. However, if your goal is purely hypertrophy, like this, you know, um, question was, 
um, you know, phrase, you know, I don't think stepping away from hypertrophy training to run a strength block or a metabolic phase is going to be beneficial because those were months where we could have been manipulating other variables within a hypertrophy training cycle and to, uh, continuing to get growth from that, which is our ultimate goal. So anytime I hear, you know, I've heard other individuals like speak on this topic or, you know, go back and forth. They've had debates on this, whether we should utilize, you know, a periodization model that switches between different phase specific training um, as compared to doing more of a um, block where it's, it's mostly throughout the course of the year, just on hypertrophy. I, I believe, uh, Cassim Hansen and Mike Israel had a debate on this, uh, a long time mm-hmm. ago on revive stronger. And anytime I like think about this, I always think about, um, I don't know if you're familiar with like the, the, um, legendary strength coach, Dan John, you yeah. familiar with Dan John, yeah. he has this yeah. quote and he's like, he's always says, keep the goal, the goal. And that's how I view training programming. Like if your goal, you come to me, you're trying to build muscle, you're trying to improve your body composition. Um, you have other, like you want to get on a physique stage, you want to get in photo shoot shape, or you just want to build the best body possible. I'm going to stick with, with hypertrophy training for the win. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. This is, and I know we talked about this quite a bit. I mean, when we first started linking up this, we did use a lot more of like a phased approach like this. And this definitely was a learning experience for us as well. Where a lot of times the idea, again, when we're looking at like neural phases, hypertrophy phases, and metabolic phases is again, like these neural phases or metabolic phases might prime us to make quicker progress when we do enter a hypertrophy phase, right? So like with a neural phase, like, Hey, maybe you're able to recruit a greater percentage of overall fibers within a tissue within any given rep. And then that's going to contribute to more meaningful hypertrophy is like kind of the thought process behind that. But it's same thing in application. I never saw that come to fruition. Um, I had an entire Jordan lips and I had an entire podcast about this, where I, we basically came to the same agreement as well, where you kind of have to look at, okay, when I am like compared to what I could be doing, is this more effective, right? If I'm taking four weeks or eight weeks to focus on a neuro block, is that really like that little bit of potentiation that I'm going to get from that? Is that really more impactful than if I had just spent that eight weeks in hypertrophy? Go ahead. If you had a thought. Yeah. So, so I remember you asked me this, one of our first mentorship calls years ago, mm-hmm. And I had come and I had run it through a coach who was very close to the guys from N1 who really kind of pioneered this neuro phase, metabolic phase, nothing against them. I think there's a time and place for everything. I just don't find there to be utility within my own coaching practices. But we have to realize we coach different clients. We have different, uh, we generate or we attract different audiences. So I think that if that's something that's worked for them, by all means, but I tried it. I worked with someone that was very close in their inner circle and I ran through all the phases. And here was the thing. They always used to, you know, the coach that I worked with would always claim the potentiation effects. And every time that I did it, and believe me, I bought into the program. So it wasn't like I really did trust him and I had the utmost respect for this individual. So it wasn't like I was like half-assing it or, I, you know, I was challenging him during the time. I said, listen, I'm opened. I'm opening up to your type. He was a mentor of mine, your type of programming. I will try it. You tell me whatever I have to do. I have to do Ronda eight by eights for, for metabolic work. If I have to do systemic training, whatever it may be, I'm going to utilize even low rep work, which I was not a fan of. And that killed my joints. And so I went through all the phases and anytime you talked about potentiation, really every time that I got into a hypertrophy phase, yes, I responded a little bit quicker. However, I almost thought to myself, and this is really where I, I sit four or five years later is I was just playing catch-up growth. So yes, my gains within that phase were accelerated, but it was because I was detrained from hypertrophy for four, eight, 12 weeks or whatever period of time that I was utilizing it for. And so really in my mind, I always used to look and say, if I had a clone of myself, if I had two versions of myself, one ran hypertrophy training for the past six months and one did a, you know, a three month strength block into a three month hypertrophy block, who is further along the way? 
And also, what do I like better? What do I fit in psychologically better? And also, what is from a longevity aspect for me personally? What is it benefiting me more? And I really found that hypertrophy training was more conducive for my goals, my preferences, as well as so many others that I worked with. So a lot of times when I would put an individual into a strength phase and I would lower their volume and really, you know, increase their load and really focus on those aspects, they didn't really enjoy the training. So oftentimes I found myself transitioning them out prior to the actual, like say that I had set up um, a mesocycle to be, you know, I was going to do eight to 12 weeks hypothetically of strength training. A lot of times they just weren't into it four to six weeks. So we got no results first and foremost. They didn't make many adaptations in a neurological perspective, but then also it was just time wasted because they didn't want to do it since the get-go. So it was something that I tried within practice. I tried myself and I just discarded it because it wasn't useful in my own application. Then I also didn't personally, like I bought in and I followed it to a T and I didn't see an actual tangible benefit where I said to myself, this is getting me further along the spectrum of growth than I would have been. I was either equaling it or a little bit behind. Yeah, absolutely. And also I want to make clear, like I've worked with coaches too, who this is very much their philosophy and they're credible coaches. They get people great results as well. So this is a lot of speaking from just like what I've seen personally, not like taking shots at anybody or anything of that nature. But I, I, I fully agree. For me personally, I have seen like part of my evolution as a coach and I've continually seen better results the longer I've been okay with like, Hey, we're just keeping most of the program the same. I think that also, I think that ideas like this really speak to coaches because I think that a lot of people have the idea that like, Hey, a client starts and I should be able to have like their next year of periodization, like mapped out where it's like, we're going to do metabolic, then we're going to do hypertrophy, then neuro, and this is going to potentiate this is going to potentiate this, but an application like especially because we're working with people who aren't professional athletes. Well, you, <laughs> well, us personally, we're not working with people who are professional athletes, but even then, like you have lives outside of this, there's, mm -hmm. I, it's a, it's an interesting thing, but I think like the more I've been able to let go of that and like, let's, Hey, let's see how you responded this week. And I'm going to adjust things based on how you responded this week. Like, do we need to deload this week and letting go of trying to pre-plan things so much? It's hard because I want to be able to like map all that out, but it's been the best thing for the client as well. Absolutely. And that's something I've always shared with you from my own practice was I am that analytical type that I do like pre-planning everything within my life and programming. But I realized the longer that I've been within coaching, as much skill and experience that I may have. And I, I want to, you know, really have my clients confidence in my skills, but oftentimes I have to depict to them, yes, I'm able to read your feedback and make the most accurate adjustments capable in terms of my capabilities, but I can't predict the future. I don't know what's right. going to come up if you're going to get into a car accident, God forbid, or you're going to have stresses in your life, or you're going to switch your shift, or you're going to go through a divorce. And for me to tell you and try to get you under the impression that I could predict the future and tell you every single phase that we're going to run for the next year would be me doing you as a service because you may get uh, psychologically hung up on something, or you may think that this is the plan and it's set and forget, and it never is. So coaching is both, you know, there are proactive approaches. So from a health perspective, I'm very proactive. There are certain interventions that I'll, I'll go since day one. I'm looking at blood glucose and different biomarkers because I want to make sure that we're taking a proactive approach to your health improvement. But a lot of my coaching is reactive and it's based off that individual's biofeedback, you know, how they feel, their preferences, what changes are in their day-to-day -day life, as well as within the context of their lifestyle, their goals. And also we have to realize that someone may come to us and we get a consultation with them. We sit with them for an hour and they lay out all their plans. And oftentimes I like, and you know, this personally is I like multi-phase goals. So I want to know three, six month, 12 month goals. However, how many times within our own life have we looked at our three, six and 12 month goals and realized, oh, I'm going to switch that. 
Well, the same yeah. thing happens with our clientele. So for me to look at a, a three, six and 12 month goal plan from a client and then periodize everything, you know, I'd really set it in stone and put it on a spreadsheet and say, this is what we're going to do. That is disregarding that person's ability and their right to change their goals based on either the progress that they've seen, the new th activities that they have in the year, maybe a vacation, or, you know, they have their uh, goal of getting on stage or they have their goal of, you know, they have their wedding that they rescheduled or whatever it may be. We need to realize that coaching should be a uh, constant evolution. It should be a constantly evolving process. And with that, our plans and our schedules will change and we need to be really adaptable and adjustable. And just like we would adjust our approach and we would be a chameleon. I often say I'm like a chameleon to my different clients because how I communicate with one is completely different than how I communicate with another. And that's only come with skill and with time and with experience. And so I've been able to adjust not only my ability to educate others, but also program for them based off of what works best for them. So a lot of times I found that not telling someone we're going to exactly do this. Sometimes I'll give them an idea. This is what I really think would be the best approach for you. But it's going, this is a collaborative effort and this is a team, you know, we're a team. So it's going to be based on not only your biofeedback, your progress, your markers, your blood work, but also what do you want to do at that moment? Where's your motivation levels? You know, where, what are your intrinsic drivers at this time and place? And so it's really a collaborative effort where I take my ability to objectively look at things and be that objective um, sidekick in their corner, which looks at things without an emotional tie in them. Because al although I care with my clients, I often look at things first objectively. Like I look at their photos, I look at their health markers before I ever read their actual feedback, because I want to get an objective analysis of what's going on. What do I see without their emotions coming into play? Because I do care about those that I work with. So I want to take that out of the equation and then re re-put that back in and then create a plan, create a course of action, create uh, a plan moving forward that considers both of those, the objective necessities and then the objective adjustments. And then also the things that I think would be best subjectively due to their emotions, due to their lifestyle, due to their stresses, and the things that I think would be really good for their psychology, not just their physiology. Absolutely. And I mean, muscle growth is also such a slow process that I think if we get to like within those phases, it's pretty easy. Like if you like get into that philosophy deeper, it's pretty easy to get into like, okay, well, essentially like maybe we all frequently set things up. Like we're going to do a neuro phase into a hypertrophy phase into a metabolic phase. And like, they're about a, a month each, give or take. And then like at the end of the year, it's, Hey, we only spent like three to maybe four months of this entire year actually focused on hypertrophy. And I think it's very hard to argue that the benefits we get from like these potentiation phases would actually be greater than if it was just like, we spent 10 to 11 months in hypertrophy this year. Yeah, I think in all aspects of life, consistency over time or effort over time equates results. And so what I found was initially we did longer phases. Like when I, I did them personally, I did longer strength phases, longer metabolic phases and longer hypertrophy phases. So they mm -hmm. were more phasic. And then we started getting into, you know, at least with the approach that I took, we started getting into these four and six week phases or even like a deload where I'd go into like a two week metabolic phase. And what I found was I didn't have enough time to build momentum with those training programs and also the movements within them. So I was almost suffering from like the chasing novelty effect, which is essentially mm -hmm. what muscle confusion is. Like you're making progress, but are you actually making real progress? Because really you're just catching up on movement. So for instance, if you start a different movement pattern or a different rep range, you're going to make progress within the first couple of weeks. And that's going to be basically neurological. We actually have research that looks at long-term outcomes in hypertrophy training. And what they showed was they did an intervention. 
where they trained, it was females, and they trained them on the biceps curl, the leg press, as well as the bench press. And they looked at hypertrophy outcomes throughout the course of the study, as well as strength development. What they found was a 20-week study. At 10 weeks in, the only body part that had grown was the biceps. However, at 20 weeks, they finally saw growth in the pe- in the chest as well as in the legs or in the quadriceps. And the reason is, is the movements they were utilizing, or maybe it was a squat actually, rather than a, a leg press. And so it took a long time. They were making strength. So at the 10 week point, there were strength improvements in all three movements. However, there weren't actual muscular adaptations except for the biceps. Cause if we really think about it from a technical proficiency aspect, you know, doing a curl, doing elbow flexion is something that's so easy. Like most of us have lifted something up. So it wasn't something that these individuals really needed to get acclimated to and that they weren't making neurological gains, you know, the entire 10 weeks, but with the squat pattern and with the uh, bench press pattern, they were making neurological gains that whole time. And it wasn't until they had done it for a consistent period of time that they actually see muscle growth from those movements. So a lot of times, you know, if we're talking about accessory movements for smaller muscle groups, or we're talking about isolation movements, I'm more apt to, or more likely to switch those in now, but really like your staple exercises, whether it be compound machine or, you know, free weight movements, we really want to develop technical proficiency and kind of beat those into the dirt. Like keep chasing progressions on those first and foremost, really get tech, like your technical execution down pat on them so that when we actually see improvements, if you have someone that has been squatting or bench pressing or dumbbell pressing, whatever it may be for a long period of time, you will see that when they actually start making improvements after being on that training program for a long period of time, you're actually seeing that correlate with, you know, muscle mass increases or weight going up and you're actually developing some actual tissue. So I think we really have to get away from it. And I know really within the gen pop, um, you know, subsect is where I've really seen this, where they're kind of chasing like the next new program every four weeks, not realizing that they're doing themselves a disservice because they see themselves making progress those first couple of weeks on a new program. But it's just because your body's adapting to that movement pattern. So yeah, you're going to get better week to week. I guarantee if anyone out there, you decide to do a different movement pattern, you will get better. Like say uh, a lift that you have yet to be doing. So you go from doing a squat pattern you completely switch it to something else. You will see gains for those first couple of weeks. And then if you switch to the next movement, you'll continue seeing gains. But really we need to see gains once we've passed that neurological proficiency aspect. If we continue seeing increases in reps, increases in load on the bar, that's really an indication that you're actually, you're actually growing muscle, which, you know, larger muscle has more capacity for force production. And so thus a bigger muscle equals a stronger muscle. Most, most of the time. I couldn't agree more, dude. Um, I think we're very much on the same page there. All right, man, we better wrap it up here. I need to hop on a call. Um, before I let you go, would you like to plug anything? Yeah, guys, if anyone is interested, next week we will be in um, Tampa, Florida for the Physique Education Collective. Would love for anyone to come out. We are selling tickets for the next week. So feel free to jump on the excellencecartel.com to grab a ticket. Uh, I would love to see you there. And if you do decide to take part in it, please um, send me an, a DM with a screenshot and I will enter you into a raffle that I'm doing for Zoom consultations as a result of coming to the PC. Uh, besides that, guys, feel free to reach out to me at Brandon DeCruz underscore on Instagram or on my email, which is Fitness at gmail.com absolutely keep the good questions coming we always appreciate it and we will catch you guys next time